question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to The City on CITR. I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, and it's May Day, International Workers' Day. On the program, we'll be discussing the importance of labor activism and hear about what's going on this May 1st uh, in New York City and even here in Vancouver. Um, and in the second half of the show, I'll be speaking with Leah McGuire, graduate student studying in social inequality and social polarization in Canada's largest city, uh, Toronto. And uh, that and more, so stay with us. This is The City. It's 5 o'clock, um, or just after, and we have a great show planned. Um, in solidarity with you on International Workers' Day, this is The City. And we're going to start things off with a track from Annie DeFranco. This is off her latest album, which side are you on? And uh, we're going to play the title track. Um, and Annie DeFranco, longtime uh, activist, and uh, uh, certainly um, has many critiques of capitalism. And uh, uh, we're going to jump right into this track and uh, listen carefully for those lyrics. There's some um, some wonderful wonder, wonderful lyricism, and uh, um, really frames many of the discussions that we're going to be having today on the city.
Are you on? That is Annie DeFranco off of her recent release uh, by that same name. And uh, which side are you on? It's a good question. Um, and for that, we're going to go to David Harvey. Um, this is an excerpt from uh, a lecture on uh, a very a prolific uh, Marxist geographer um, and um, one of the most renowned social theorists, um, Marxist social theorists um, to date. And we're going to go to a, a very short. Um, part of a lecture that he gave talking about um, the importance of class struggle. And so um, in thinking about which side are you on, um, I I think David Harvey um, has a a fair bit to add to that discussion. Um, And so we have that. And then coming up, we're going to go to some coverage of um, activities in New York City and then a brief summary of what's going on uh, right now in Vancouver. Things are just underway um, at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and I can we'll give a a quick overview of what's going on today. up as well. So stay tuned. This is 101.9 FM CITR. This is the city. Now we're dedicated to critical discussion of urban issues. And right now, this is David Harvey. But then there's another project, which is the political project, which is that, um, you know, we, we can't wait uh, to engage in political action until we've worked out all of the bits of theory that Marx didn't properly <laughs> cover, you know. I mean, we're faced with, with, with urgent business uh, right now. And what Marx does is to, I think, hold up sufficient of a mirror uh, to us 
that, that we can immediately start to think about different modes of, uh, of action. And I think that this is where uh, that obvious term which comes out of Marx's analysis, which is the notion of class struggle, comes back into play. And politically, one of the problems we've had, I think, over the last 30 years is that people have started to say, well, class doesn't exist, or class struggle is irrelevant, or... Now, on that point, I think what Marx does is to tell you politically that you're not going to get anywhere in dealing with this system unless you're prepared to engage in some kind of class struggle. Uh, what we need to do is to, is to consolidate what that might mean. And I think that Marx himself at the time, from his, in his own writings, wasn't very clear as to what this, this, this meant. But when pol political action unfolds, then there is, I think, and this is what you get from him, there is a necessity to participate, a necessity to be engaged. Even if you don't know all of the theory, even if you don't know everything, you know sufficiently about the dynamics of the system as you know exactly that this question of class struggle is, is, is fundamental. Now people will immediately say, oh, well you're trying to reduce the question of nature to class struggle or you're trying to reduce uh, questions of sexuality and gender and race and all this kind of thing to, to uh, uh, to questions of class, and I think the answer to that is uh, no, that's not going on at all. Those are, there are struggles of that sort which are very, very critical and very important to engage in also. But look at something like the subprime mortgage crisis, look who it's impacting upon most. It's heavily concentrated uh, amongst Afri African Americans, it's heavily concentrated on women, low-income women, and it's a class phenomenon. And it's amazing when you start to think of it, the number of places and times in which those categories completely overlap, including also with ethnicity and all the rest of it. So actually, what we have to do is not be frightened of the word class. I think there's a nervousness about class. When, of course, there's a very good reason why there's a nervousness about class is because ideologically, the capitalist class, which is very easy to define right now, doesn't want us to think about class. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as soon as you raise any kind of big issue or, or somebody raises some big issue, the Wall Street Journal jumps up and down and says, ah, you want to talk about divisiveness of class struggle. As if to say, well, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. But this is seen as a divisive thing, and therefore, therefore, if you like, the one thing the bourgeoisie, and again, this is something that Marx teaches you ideologically, the one thing the bourgeoisie does not want you to talk about is the one thing that it is crucially engaged upon. First off, it's very hard to find out where the money is. We have data on everything else. They have data on us. They have, they have chips on us and, you know, where we're going and all this kind of stuff. Can we find out where their money is? They always say, no, 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 we can't find out. But what the anti-terrorism stuff started to show was they could find out where the money was if they really wanted to. They don't want to know. That is the one thing you hide. You hide where the money's coming from, where it's going to. You hide also a great deal about capitalist power, which is a class power, and how that class power works. Because that would mean that somebody would oppose it with a class power. So the one thing they're terrified of is class power. They're very delighted at things like identity politics. Now, I'm not saying identity politics is all wrong, okay? I'm saying they are delighted by multiculturalism, 
They are delighted by identity politics. The one kind of multiculturalism they don't want to hear about is class. The one thing they don't want to hear about at all. So what Marx teaches you is you've got to go to this. You've got to be there. Now, how we do it is a big question. And one of the things I've tried to raise is if there are class struggles going on around primitive accumulation and accumulation by dispossession, those have to be integrated with you know, traditional class struggles in the workplace. That's not always easy to do. And actually right now there's a lot of struggles going on against dispossession. And sometimes the traditional working class movement doesn't want to know about that. And sometimes they don't want to know about the traditional working class movement either. So the divisiveness around this question is something that seriously hurts us politically. And I think this comes out of Marx very strongly that you've got to confront what the centerpiece of the problem is. And the centerpiece of the problem is that they are accumulating capital off your back. They're either doing it through dispossession or they're doing it by absorbing your labor and, and, and the like. So whatever they're doing, they're getting filthy rich while you are the ones who are going to suffer. And that cannot continue. And, and that what Marx is basically saying to us by holding up this mirror is, get with it, he wrote us, he salter. Here's the ball, now run with it, create the class struggle. How to do that? Big question. But you've got to do it, and there's a necessity for that. And it's a necessity not simply for the working class, it's a necessity for, for humanity. Insofar as we have a decent civilized life at all right now, it has everything to do with the dynamics of class struggle over the last hundred years or more. And the fact that we're not waging it so effectively right now is a real problem and we've got to get out there and do it and do it right. Grammy Award winners, Tedeschi Trucks Band brings their blues-inspired show to the Vancouver Centre for Performing Arts for one night, June 19th. Tickets on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at Ticketmaster.ca or by calling 855-985-5000. Don't miss Tedeschi Trucks Band on June 19th at the Vancouver Centre for Performing Arts. For more information, go to TedeschiTrucks.com. Well, I came to the city. I was running How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding.
And before that break, you heard from David Harvey talking about uh, the importance of class struggle um, uh, today and uh, perhaps even more importantly today as we see growing inequality um, and wages completely out of whack um, in terms of what it takes to get by um, in our in our cities, in our North American cities, um, and not only in North America, but across the world in the global south. And... Uh, so May Day is about that, and um, we're going to go now to Free Speech Radio News' coverage of May Day from New York City, um, where Occupy Wall Street got its start, um, and where we may be seeing uh, the rebirth of the Occupy movement. Um, so again, from Free Speech Radio News, um, this is a report on May Day from New York. Starting off our May Day coverage, we go to New York City, where labor and immigrant rights groups collaborated with Occupy Wall Street to organize multiple events with the theme, A Day Without the 99%. The events included a picket, rally, march, student walkout, and teach-in, and they took place across the city. FSRN's Jessel Noor reports. Actions began in Midtown Manhattan Tuesday morning. Despite a heavy police presence and light rain, participants rallied in Bryant Park, their base of operations, complete with a kitchen and library. Activists then fanned out in dozens of separate actions across the city. General strike today. No work, no school, no shopping. Send a message to the one percent. Nine-year-old Jude Rollison of Brooklyn skipped school to take part in the protests. Because I've been learning about civil rights in school, and I, my dad, he, he got me into this, and I, and I think it's a really good learning process. Her father, Rich Rollison, a self-employed writer, is also not working today. He said he hopes the day's actions can reinvigorate the Occupy movement. Well, we've been involved with uh, Occupy uh, since the beginning, off and on, and we're really hoping that today's general strike will sort of bring the movement back into the forefront, uh, especially in this election year when it's important to keep making the oppression we made already that um, the mass, the, the real mass of American voters are tired of money running politics and uh, taking over democracy, and, and we want um, people power to... Uh, outrule uh, corporate power. Some activists are concerned about the heavy police presence and a growing number of arrests. In advance of the May Day action, several activists reported that police raided their homes. Shane Patrick, who works with Occupy Wall Street's press working group, says they won't be intimidated. You know, I think we take that in stride the same way we took, like, the large arrests in the Brooklyn Bridge in stride. Uh, frequently, when the police overstep their bounds... Um, it only brings more people out into the streets outraged. Uh, they, the, the police can often do our work for us. We should sign them up as the street team. Activists also plan demonstrations targeting corporations, including Bank of America, Chase, News Corps, and the auction house Sotheby's, which has locked out its workers amidst a 10-month-long contract dispute over wage increases. Teamster Local 814 shop steward David Martinez represents the locked-out workers. And people need to be out, and people need to be more aware of what's going on in this country, and it's pretty horrible, and now is a, is a good time to you know, bring that awareness to people. You know? 
New York City May Day events are planned to continue through the evening, but many, including City Council Member Jumani Williams, said the work challenging corporate domination must continue in the days ahead. We got to make sure that it, that energy is maintained. I think they can survive a day. I don't know if they can survive a week. I know they can't survive a month, so we got to get uh, the pressure continued. The day's actions will culminate with the march to the financial district and onto Wall Street itself. Jessel Noor, FSRN, New York. And thanks to Free Speech Radio News for providing that coverage from New York City. Um, you can find all of their newscasts and wonderful uh, reports from uh, their website at fsrn.org. And here in Vancouver, um, underway, um, we have um, uh, the May Day um, activities um, starting at the Art Gallery. And it looks like by now... Um, they are probably um, maybe continuing through speakers. Um, so at 3 o'clock, um, gathering started at the art gallery and um, speakers throughout the afternoon. And then um, by 6 o'clock, um, some speeches by uh, president of the BC Fed, um, Federation of Labor, Jim, Jim Sinclair, um, and then a march um, starting around 6.15, according to the schedule, um, down to uh, W2, the W2 Media Center um, in the Woodward's uh, development. And then uh, some uh, festival and festivities um, around 7.30 at W2. So uh, you can find more of that um, from the Vancouver District Labor Council's website and uh, uh, get on down there. Um, and I, I was hoping to have uh, somebody down there that we could check in with, but uh, unfortunately, and maybe ironically, uh, we were both stuck at work today. So um, I hope everyone is having a wonderful time and certainly check it out um, down at the Art Gallery and then heading over to W2 um, on West Hastings um, at 6.15 or so. And uh, we're going to move into the second half of the show. Um, and in, in this theme, uh, certainly along the lines of May Day um, and changing cities and changing um, social dynamics, um, I have Liam McGuire in studio um, from the UBC Geography Department, a graduate student uh, studying, studying and looking at the effects um, of social polarization um, and social inequality in the city of Toronto, um, which is as you know, Canada's largest city. So, uh, Liam, I want to thank you for being in studio. Thanks, Andy. Uh, happy May Day. Yeah, happy May Day to you. Um, so, let's get right into it. What, um, what does your research focus on? And um, to, to go in, in with that, uh, why were you interested in, in this research and um, involved in um, the, the social geography of Toronto in the first place? <laughs> so, this, uh, this definitely falls in some of the, the words of David Harvey that we heard from earlier. And what I'm really interested in is just capturing what's going on in Toronto as an example of Canadian cities that in general are facing rising levels of both inequality and polarization, both in terms of economics, uh, in terms of income, uh, but also in terms of uh, social polarization as well. And there's def many different ways to, to think about that. Uh, so this research is grounded within mostly within the work of a researcher named David Holchansky. And he's out of the University of Toronto. And in 2007, he published a report called The Three Cities of Toronto. And basically what this report did is it looked at the period of 1970 to 2005. So over this 35-year period, it tracked what was going on in terms of 
individual average income within a census tract, which is essentially a neighborhood of about 4,000 people. So he and uh, his fellow researchers tracked what was happening over this 35-year period, and what they found was that uh, over these three and a half decades, essentially the city polarized to a huge extent. So if we think about Toronto, uh, the inner city, uh, and just off to the, in the part of the, the a western cluster of neighborhoods, essentially rose by 20% or more in terms of average income over the 35-year period. And this is what David Holchancy called city number one. So essentially neighborhoods or census tracts where the average income went up by a significant amount. Uh, on the other side, there were also a cluster of neighborhoods that he termed city number three. And these neighborhoods are, for the most part, in the uh, the suburbs to the north, uh, what has been called the inner or mature suburbs. So essentially, communities that are built just outside of the downtown core, uh, where we see a mix of apartment buildings and single detached housing. So very heterogeneous mix uh, of the housing stock. And this is also an area where we also see a high concentration of immigrant households moving directly into the suburbs, which is something new that uh, that it's a huge change from the post-World War II uh, patterns of immigration. So within these areas, uh, relative to city number one, Halchansky actually found a decreasing average income by 20% or more over the 35-year period. So essentially what we have is a huge growth in the polarization of income between city number three in the downtown core, just north of downtown, the, the wealthier neighborhoods, and a huge decrease in average income in the what's called the, the inner suburbs, essentially. So uh, really positioning this, this idea of growing polar, uh, polarization within the Toronto landscape. And, and for those who do, do know Toronto, um, can you put some names to some of the neighborhoods um, that you would see in city number one, which would be the wealthier Toronto, the the Toronto that has seen uh, increases in, in average income um, and compare that to uh, some of the neighborhoods that would be in, in City 3? Yeah, of course. So uh, if we think about City number 1, where we've seen increasing uh, income concentrate within a certain population, we can think about Forest Hill, uh, Bridal Path. Uh, if we switch over to City number 3, uh, we think about Jane and Finch, which has uh, definitely... Uh, gotten a lot of uh, press in recent years for concentrating uh, rates of poverty. We can also think about parts of Etobicoke in the west and especially Scarborough in the east. Okay. Um, and I, I wanted to, so your research is, is following um, very much in line with a lot of the work um, of the three cities within Toronto that um, Holchansky has done with a number of uh, colleagues. Um, and you're focused on uh, the 10 cities um, within Toronto. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so uh, definitely borrowing a little bit from, from Halchansky. Uh, however, the idea of the 10 cities is to take Halchansky's analysis and expand it a bit. So Halchansky gave us this really important research. However, it's only based on one variable, and that variable is average income. So what I wanted to do was to kind of expand the analysis to not just look at economic polarization, but also look at polarization in terms of other dimensions, so to speak. So looking at uh, the dimensions of housing, citizenship, ethnicity, income, labor, and unpaid labor, uh, I constructed uh, a few 
dimensions, uh, you could say, of uh, a collection of these variables that spoke to a bunch of different ways to think about how the city might be arranged and how uh, how quality of life might differ differ across population groups. So all in all, this gave me 36 variables to work with. <laughs> and I packaged this all together um, after uh, hours of staring at computer screens and lots of cups of coffee, put together a, a two-step methodology that essentially looked for latent patterns in the data through what's called a principal component analysis or a factor analysis. And based on those patterns, uh, you can kind of think of, of a, uh, a line of best fit going through a scatter plot, essentially. So looking at those lines of best fit, uh, able, able to arrange all these variables into 10 groups. So all of the census tracts, again, those neighborhoods of about 4,000 people or so, all of those throughout the Toronto census metropolitan area, so looking at the, the region of Toronto as a whole, uh, all of those census tracts were arranged into one of 10 groups or one of 10 clusters. And each of those 10 clusters has been named uh, essentially a city, giving us the 10 cities of Toronto, which shows polarization and inequality, not just in terms of income, but also in terms of labor, in terms of housing, in terms of uh, uh, unpaid labor, and uh, a number of other dimensions that we can think about in terms of how polarization is increasing across the landscape. And you've put some creative uh, names and uh, descriptions to um, your 10 cities and your typology. Uh, Can you talk about some of the findings within this and um, how it um, can play off of... um, the three cities essentially and and does this tell us more and um yeah some of some of that yeah definitely so there's essentially three main trends that are going on within this research and uh i've turned we've termed these inner city polarization the hedge communities and the borrowed frontier so within the communities of inner city polarization uh these are, for the most part, communities that are in the inner city and inner suburbs of Toronto. And within these, uh, these groups of census tracts, we find the highest levels of inequality in terms of economic inequality across Toronto. Uh, so in the downtown core, we've essentially seen uh, what amounts to a full gentrification of the downtown core in the financial district along uh, Bay Street, which is a major street that runs north to south through the straight through the middle of Toronto, and uh, along the waterfront or the harbour front of Toronto has also been heavily gentrified, mostly by uh, singles and couples working in the financial uh, district or financial sector. Uh, so just moving a little bit out uh, to the inner suburbs, still thinking about this idea of inner city polarization, we also see uh, a large number of immigrants living in what's termed as vertical poverty. And uh, this essentially speaks to a large proportion of recent immigrants living in the more affordable rental apartments that were built in this Fordist era. So kind of uh, 1960s, 1970s, and we see uh, lots of clusters of these rental apartment buildings that uh, essentially are the last stock of affordable housing within Toronto, but also uh, keeping with this idea of city number three, which Paul Chansey talked about, these are also where we see the the fastest rising levels uh, of poverty. So in terms of the inner city, uh, that's... And, and now is there pressure on... Um 
some of this older rental housing stock um, for conversions, for social upgrading? Um, is there a pressure or, you know, we could use Regent Park, which is um, a very, I think, is it Canada's, was Canada's largest housing, uh, public housing project, which is undergoing uh, privatization and essentially neoliberalization. Um, but is there is there pressure upon a lot of these uh, inner city areas, which do have high proportions of rental stock, um, for condo conversion? Is that something that played into this, or did you did you see that change through your um, through the housing tenure, especially? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, if we think about the the inner suburbs to the north, that pressure isn't there as much, but we see an immense amount of pressure uh, in areas like Regent Park, uh, but areas that have been termed the, uh, essentially the city of go-go gentrification. And, uh, <laughs> and what does that mean? Well, uh, essentially, uh, a lot of these communities are, are linked to the go commuter train, which okay. it kind of runs like the West Coast Express here in Vancouver. Right. Uh, so that isn't to say that uh, a commuter train is bringing gentrification to many neighborhoods across Toronto. However, there is a very interesting link in terms of neighborhoods both in the inner city and neighborhoods in places such as downtown Brampton, which is a suburban municipality, and uh, Port Credit, another suburban municipality along the lakeshore that are also gentrifying in an interesting pattern. So what we see overall in this uh, city, if we, if we can call it that, are essentially neighborhoods that have a large proportion of older housing stock that is facing major repair. So what this opens up is something called a rent gap, essentially, where you have a huge gap between the potential value of what a housing unit could go for or the land that it's on and the actual value that the housing is currently priced at. So within these areas, directly to the east and west of the downtown core, we have a whole bunch of communities that essentially are facing huge gentrification pressures as they're individually one by one picked off by uh, high investments of capital creating gentrification right. pressures. And just to um, uh, give an example locally, um, uh, something we covered last week was the sequel 138 condo development um, on the former Pantages Theatre site at Hastings in Maine. And this is a site um, that, uh, and this is a battle that has been going on for a long time. And just going back to this um, idea of a rent gap, um, that inner city land is very valuable and the potential for what is deemed the highest and best use of that land um, is much higher than uh, what could be achieved in some cases if it's rental housing or um, in the case of the Pantages Theatre, an abandoned uh, historic theatre. Um, so it's interesting to think about that playing out um, in cities all over, um, but certainly, and it plays out in different ways. Um, the Pantages or sequel example is a bit unusual, but it's often um, with rental stock. It's yeah. applied to that, yeah. So I, I wanted to go back to the um, to the Go Transit and looking at um, gentrification around those transit stops. Mm -hmm. In Toronto, do you see... Is there still are there still lower income communities within the city of Toronto that you see, um, and I don't know if this is beyond the scope of your research, but commuting outside of the city limits? Um, so you see, and is there concern that people may be getting pushed out of these neighborhoods um, that, according to your analysis, um, have been experiencing gentrification pressures? Um, just what are the dynamics within Toronto? It's a huge metropolitan area, and certainly. We see um, a lot of times in, in different forms of suburbanism, especially American suburbanism, a lot of jobs um, often are in the suburbs, and so mm -hmm. you start to see those pressures. Or 
another way to think of it, are people moving towards in these neighborhoods where there is such convenient inner city transit, um, and then they're also hopping on the train to go elsewhere. Is that how do you make sense of some of this? And yeah. How, what are those flows? What are those flows looking like? So the the, the first part of that an- the answer to the question is sorry it was uh, yeah no 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 super, problem no super oh, it's a, it, it's, yeah. it's a great question. Um, uh, the first the first way to answer that question in terms of people traveling uh, between places of the city to go to work, I wouldn't say it's as prevalent in terms of people living who still live in the inner city commuting out to the suburbs. However, we can definitely think of the idea of uh, Joel Garrow's edge cities. And the idea of this is that a lot of a lot of employment is concentrated now within the suburbs as employment centers themselves. So rather than this traditional notion of people jumping in their car and driving downtown to go to work, what we see is actually people driving, jumping in their car and going to work uh, from one suburb to another without actually bypassing the downtown core entirely. So a, a second really important to part to mention there is that in terms of manufacturing, the inner city has been almost entirely hollowed out uh, of any manufacturing firms, which have all been essentially suburbanized in places like Brampton. So in a weird twist, uh, the industrial city has been turned inside out, uh, and we now see manufacturing firms mostly on the outside uh, parts of the urban region. Okay, let's take a quick break, um, and then after the break, I want to ask you about uh, the history of um, amalgamation in Toronto. Toronto, uh, very different in many ways from Vancouver, um, in the sense that many parts of Toronto are very suburban, and I think by many many accounts would be considered suburban. Yet they're within um, the city boundaries. So, um, and and then from that, I think uh, certainly plentiful discussion to be had around Rob Ford um, and um, the reactionary politics um, in City Hall right now. So stay with us. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, and we're broadcasting from the University of British Columbia um, in Vancouver, BC, and um, it's May 1st, and it's going on 545. Um, We're going to hear a quick... um, uh, PSA break and a track from Obiju, um, Obiju, um, based uh, in Toronto, and uh, more discussion to to be uh, on the way with Liam McGuire from UBC Geography. Stay tuned. Well, the hardcore stuff is just is fast, very aggressive, and loud. You know, music, angry music. I'm your host, Mr. Steeston Mike. Welcome to the Flex Your Head Show on CITR 101.9 FM here in Vancouver. I'm here every Tuesday. 6 to 8 p.m. Playing some punk and hardcore for you. Uh, if you want to hear something, feel free to give me a call at 604-822-2487 or swing by flexyourhead.net and send us an email with a request. Get to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, Bunk? This April at the Rio, Open Mic Nights will now be happening twice monthly. A showcase of local musicians, comedians, poets, and variety acts. Doors at 7 p.m. and the show starts at 8 for these free 19-plus events, April 4th and 18th. Want more live entertainment? Check out Dirty Dancing Burlesque at the Rio, April 5th, a burlesque show featuring live music with all the hit songs from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack and burlesque inspired by the movie. Saturday, April 7th, 
Back by popular demand, it's the big screen Barrel House 2, a modern throwback to the silent film era. Film classics will have their soundtracks reimagined by some of Vancouver's most talented acts. Wednesday, April 11th, it's Canada's own... Welcome back to the city on CITR 101.9 FM. And I have Liam McGuire in studio, and we're talking about social polarization in Canada's largest city, Toronto, um, on this May Day. And uh, we're going to shift the conversation a little bit and talk um, about uh, neoliberal suburbanism and um, even neoliberal urbanism um, in the context of Toronto. And 
Liam, I want to go to a, um, a quote from um, an article that uh, Jamie Peck, um, geographer within UBC's department, um, and this is his article from 2011 um, entitled Neoliberal Suburbanism. And uh, this is a quote talking about um, the suburb. In contrast to the hostile socio-institutional terrains across which neoliberalization projects are typically prosecuted, especially in the big cities, these unmarked regulatory spaces have become sites not only for, the pr for primitive residential accumulation, but also for new styles of deregulatory politics. The suburban frontier for David Brooks... Uh, for David Brooks represents a zone of unparalleled, quote, conservative utopianism, unquote, a uniquely welcoming sociological void with no past, no precedent, no settled conventions. Um, so to what extent are we seeing um, this form of deregulatory politics emerge in Toronto? Um, and to what extent um, can your research um, validate some of that? Well, I should say first that luckily it hasn't gone to the extreme yet of uh, of actually building communities on boats to get away from uh, tax <laughs> regulations, something that's currently being or has been recently gone after by Patrick Friedman, who uh, you may know of, uh, as the grandson of the famous neoliberal uh, ideologist uh, uh, Thomas Friedman. And apologist. And apologist, <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Um, so in, in terms of this idea of deregulation uh, within the suburbs, uh, there's been a lot of rising literature uh, currently or recently on, on the suburbs as, as really this area where the, the rollback uh, of government and the rollout essentially of a, a restructuring process of really changing the way that we think about how services are provided in society is taking place. So if we can think about uh, Rob Ford's uh, election victory in 2010, the reason he was able to win was by winning the suburbs. And the way that Rob Ford won the suburbs was that he appealed to a, a certain uh, a crabgrass governance, if you will. So he, he appealed to certain rationalities that he found were centered in the suburbs that were really around these concepts of uh, of wasteful municipal spending under previous uh, Mayor David Miller. And running on this platform of... Gonna, in yeah. the gravy train, right? Yes. Or st yeah. stop the gravy train. Stopping right? the gravy train, yeah. <laughs> so on this platform of stopping the gravy train, Ford was really appealing to these rationalities that were kind of constructed as as common sense, so to speak. And this is something that's been growing ever since uh, Mike Harris and the Tories rolled in in 1995 with this uh, common sense revolution, as it was called at the time. Hmm. Uh, I don't think you'd find many people who would call it common sense today, but... Uh, the history's there all the same. So by appealing to this growing rationality of uh, deregulation uh, in the suburbs, we've really seen a growth of neoliberal ideals where the state is not only uh, distrusted, but the state is actually uh, fully active in restructuring how, how society uh, deals out uh, certain uh, resources like housing and transportation. So going back to your research, um Remind me and remind listeners, what's the date that you're starting to look at these trends? Is it 71? Uh, so my research just looks at a snapshot of okay. 2006. But okay. it, does it does think about the historic changes okay. since okay. Uh, 1970. Okay. Uh, so, so, and just thinking about um, Holchansky's work, um, he started in 71, 71 census, is that right? And then up to 2006? Exactly, yeah. Um, and seeing the trending and a, a comment he's made is this has um, this research, you know, puts us on a track 
Um, and it raises some significant alarms as to where we want to head. Um, and your research, um, certainly, I would I would say, and please correct me if I'm if if I'm wrong, but um, I think is alarming because I think and going back to this idea of of deregulatory um, politics um, and uh, the suburban <laughs> zeitgeist or um, whatever you know, however you want to put it. Um, which is very reactionary. Um, and, and in Toronto, I can't help but think a lot of this is coming from a city that is um, is increasingly at odds, where you have... You, you look at the results from the Ford, um, the most recent municipal election uh, in which Rob Ford won, um, and you see Rob Ford, and he's... he's pulling voters from the periphery, right? Mm -hmm. The traditional suburbs of Toronto, the inner suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't help but think this is a, an incredible um, fracture in, in the urban, um, urban culture of Toronto. Mm -hmm. and, and it should be said, I guess, first and foremost, too, that uh, to think about where the suburb, suburban voter is coming from as well, if we look at how resources are, have historically been distributed, it's actually concentrate more in the inner city. So there is there is some room to think about why there's a disillusionment. Uh, but And that's, you know, ironically, the space of the city, which is, by many accounts, the most under attack by wealthier users, essentially, wealthier definitely. residents, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, this poses huge questions for the people that perhaps depend on, you know, inner city transit more than people who can afford their private automobile they're the ones that are facing the greatest pressures within the inner city. Exactly, yeah. And as we think more and more about uh, well, that, that common trope that a rising tide floats all boats, well, well, in reality, I mean, a lot of those boats are going to sink because we don't have we don't have an equal if we don't have an equal distribution or at least a somewhat equal distribution of income. What we're going to see are the people that need these these public resources the most are not going to be getting them on a greater and greater scale. And as we uh, think about things such as May Day and and think about uh, David Harvey's words in terms of what city we we want, uh, we need to think about what kind of society we want to be too. Do we want to be a society of increasing and growing polarization, uh, where uh, this is all done under the absolute necessity of growth, or do we want to think about actually having a serious discussion about getting the federal state back into housing, about getting the province back into housing, about helping city municipalities out more in terms of providing these services. So I think thinking about these uh, neoliberal suburbanisms and how politicians like Ford are able to gain victories by appealing to these rationalities is uh, a really important conversation to have in the next few years. Do you think he's imploding, though? And, and do you think there's enough of a feeling that even for those that even voted for him, that this is not where we want to be headed? So this is some room for optimism. And uh, it's always a nice thing because a lot of the time it's kind of a, a one-way battle. Um, we see a lot of political parties, both in the United States and Canada, traditionally just drifting closer and closer towards the right, uh, which becomes increasingly the center. Uh, I think the, the recent developments, so uh, we see the main one being uh, the transit city. So under the, the former, more reformist mayor, David Miller, the proposal of a more widespread public transportation uh, plan was originally scrapped by Rob Ford a day after he got into office, but recently it's been brought back, and uh, there's a pretty intense fight going on right now at City Hall, but one that Ford is increasingly losing. So he's re recently lost a number of key, key battles over private development, public-private development schemes, and it opens some space to say that 
hopefully uh, hopefully there's some room to to do a few about turns here and think about cities that are uh, more about uh, an equal distribution of resources and and not to be um, not to be a downer or <laughs> pessimistic but so many of these changes um, are rooted in um, more uh, global challenges to the local state and financialization and the growth of um, what's known as the fire mm-hmm. um, financial or sorry um, finance um, insurance insurance and, uh, real estate, real estate. Yeah. Um, doesn't help to have an acronym if you can't <laughs> remember it um, but the growth of this um, these industries within Toronto and the loss of manufacturing jobs the loss of um, a lot of working class jobs um, <laughs> Even even if you see progressive governments in power um, locally, um, are a lot of these trends? Um, I mean, a lot of these trends have been underway under progressive municipal governments mm-hmm. in Toronto. Um, so the fact that we have Rob Ford doesn't necessarily, or the fact that we boot Rob Ford out the door doesn't necessarily mean um, that a lot of these uh, processes, like gentrification, can necessarily be halted, or can they? I don't know. No, that's an excellent point. I mean. Uh, for the seven or eight years prior to Rob Ford, we had David Miller, who was a much more progressive mayor, uh, following before him, uh, a mayor who was more in tune with Rob Ford in terms of conservative ideals. So there's definitely a limited, it's a limited role that the local state can play. And I think there's a few levels we have to think about this. If we're thinking about on the global scale, and we're thinking about global and world cities, and uh, we can get into a mindset where there's very little that cities can actually do. Uh, and to a certain extent, there's definitely limitations there. But if we think about how uh, federal, provincial, and municipal levels of, of government all start to rework how services are provided, and even if we think about how we dis- we talk about uh, we talk about society, uh, we can start to think about more viable alternatives. So things such as not just keeping Medicare public. Uh, but also thinking about what do we want our transportation to look like? What do we want our housing to look like? And we don't have to certain, certainly jump into solutions right away, but we can start to think about more progressive and smarter ideas, such as well, what would it look like if we made uh, public transit completely affordable and more accessible? What would it look like if we de- decommodified housing? So uh, I think just with uh, what we've seen in the rapid rise of... Uh, and and raise, uh, raise taxes, which yeah. ironically has to some extent been accomplished in Ontario. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, I think you make some very important points. And unfortunately, we're going to have to <laughs> yeah. uh, wrap it up. Um, but I want to thank you, Liam, so much for coming in. And uh, I look forward to talking to you more about Toronto um, in uh, coming months. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much, Andy. It's been a great opportunity. Uh, This is The City on CATR 101.9 FM. Flex Your Head is coming up next, uh, right away. And um, you can find uh, more about the show and the podcast at thecityfm.wordpress.com and as well at citr.ca. You can find The City on CATR every Tuesday at 5 p.m. as well as the podcast, um, which is archived for every show. And uh, find, us, find us on Facebook at The City, on CITR, on Twitter, The City on CITR. Um, and stay tuned for Flex Your Head. We're going to leave you with Ostra's The Villain. This is CITR. <laughs>